You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Welcome if you're new. So glad you're here. We're looking at 1 Peter, which is uh, the letter written by uh, the Apostle Peter uh, to some churches in northeastern Asia Minor, Turkey today. And um, he's teaching Christians how to live in in a culture that is very foreign to them. Uh, We sometimes call that the empire around here. And um, last week he was talking about how we uh, as Christians should live in subjection to the state. Um, and this week, he's talking about how Christians should be subject to their, uh, their masters. And it, one potential application for us would be a boss. So that's, that's one way to apply it. But there's also another way to apply it, um, which was there was slavery being practiced in Paul's day. And so this is also um, a command to the enslaved people that um, are under the, um, the households of these masters. And it's, it's really a hard, hard passage um, because Christians have used this passage, especially uh, Presbyterians in the South uh, in the 1800s, used this passage as a weapon, as a weapon to, to beat down their slaves uh, for decades and decades. And so the, the question is, how could Peter call uh, the servants uh, to submit uh, who are being persecuted? And that's what I want to look at, um, the submission of the servants first, and then the, um, the servant, the servant, the brother, and the, the brother of all of these servants, the, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. So the servants first, and then the suffering servant. So first of all, uh, you need to know something about large Roman households. They would have had multiple families. They would have had maybe 20 people in them. They were uh, just huge dwellings. And um, there, were many, there were many servants, uh, bond servants. There was kind of a hierarchy from the master all the way down. Um, and, and the servants were at very different levels. Uh, some of them were in bondage, and they did not own their own bodies. A lot of others were more like uh, laborers that were in a contract situation. So you had a lot of different levels. And even among those who were enslaved, there were... The ones in the fields at the very bottom, and those in the household are a little higher. And uh, this was, it was not based on race. It was not based on kidnapping. Uh, it, was, it was not permanent. So it was different from uh, the chattel slavery that was practiced in the, in the New World, um, the transatlantic slave trade. It was not like that, but you know, I don't want to minimize it. Uh, masters were very cruel. Uh, it says in verse 18... Uh, be subject to your masters, not only the good, but the unjust. So he's assuming that uh, some of these servants are uh, in bondage to these terrible masters. And it says in verse 20, they were beaten. 
So they didn't own their bodies. They could be easily abused. Uh, Peter assumes unjust treatment is going on. That's why he says in verse 20, when you suffer, uh, when you do good and suffer for it, uh, it is a gracious thing. It, it's uh, assuming that some of these servants were doing good and yet they were suffering for it. So it's very hard to hear this passage and, and think, is, is Peter enabling the status quo? Um, why didn't he say, servants, escape from your masters? That's what I would have wanted him to say, I think. Servants, uh, flee from your masters. Um, I think there's a couple of things there. Uh, first of all, it's important to remember that the, the early churches were in they, these households were the early churches. They did not own a building. Uh, they simply met in the households. And so when someone was converted, like Lydia, who was a businesswoman, uh, suddenly her house was the church. They all met there. And uh, a lot of the people, the servants in her household became part of the church. They, they almost all immediately became Christians. Because as the master, so goes the whole household. And so if Peter had said to the slaves, uh, escape, you know, leave the master, uh, leave the household, actually it would have shut down the churches. Uh, the, the masters would have just said, okay, that's not happening anymore. Uh, we're we're, we're going to go track down the slaves, no more church. And then also Rome would have cracked down on the gospel and would have snuffed it out. Because it would have been very, um, it would have been destabilizing the Roman Empire and they would have cracked down and they would have snuffed out the gospel. So... I think that's one thing. And then the other thing that's very important to remember is that Peter and Paul had a plan. And the plan was to implant a seed of the gospel into the hearts and the minds of the masters. And that seed would grow and would break up uh, the hard ground of slavery. So that you see that in the New Testament. Uh, there's a man named Philemon. Uh, there's a whole book, an entire letter written Paul to Philemon it's all about uh, this man named Onesimus who was enslaved to Philemon. And Paul tells Philemon, I want you to receive Onesimus, but no longer as a slave, rather as a brother. So it is, a, it is an encouragement to this master to release uh, this slave because he's now a brother. And so when Paul says in Christ there is no slave or free, and when he's asking the masters and the servants to bow down together and to pray, uh, there's a seed that gets planted there, you know, in, in the heart of, um, of the Roman Empire, and it changes the relationship of Christians to slavery. And we see that uh, in, in the year 150, there's a book called The Shepherd of Hermas. And in The Shepherd of Hermas, uh, you already see that the churches are raising funds to buy slaves out of their slavery. Um, back then, you could do that. It was a different kind of slavery. You could, you could buy someone out of it. And we saw that in 150 AD, that's already happening. So that, that, the churches are doing that. They're beginning to use their money, pull together resources, and purchase these people out of their slavery. Also, in uh, 150 years after that, in 300 AD, uh, a man named Gregory of Nyssa, one of the greatest theologians of the early church, Gregory of Nyssa, he said this. He said, uh, you condemn a person to slavery whose nature is free and independent. You have subjected one who was made to be the Lord of the earth to the yoke of slavery. And he, he commanded everyone, uh, he was a bishop, to, uh, to free their slaves. He condemned slavery. That's, people don't realize that, that in 335 AD, 
One of the great theologians of the church has already condemned slavery as a practice. And then that seed that was planted in Philemon that Peter is planting in these masters, it keeps growing, keeps breaking through. And so in 1435, this is 100 years before the slave trade began, there's a pope named Eugene IV. And he, the very first time that Europeans encountered Africans on the Canary Islands, this is what Pope Eugene wrote to those European explorers in 1435. That date is very important because, again, that's, that's 100 years before really slavery got going. And he said, he said to the European explorers, you have stolen the natives' property and subjected some of them to perpetual slavery. By the blood of Christ, we command you to free all slaves and restore their property in 15 days. And he says, if you do not, you'll be damned. So that's 1435. 1550, 100 years after that, we're now in the New World. So now fast forward to America. The Spanish bishop uh, Bartolome de las Casas, in 1550, he wrote this. What we have committed in the Indies stands out among the most unpardonable offenses ever committed against God and mankind. That's a Catholic bishop writing in 1550. And then 1537, Pope Paul III condemns the transatlantic slave trade. 1591, Pope Gregory XIV, same thing. Pope Urban VIII, 1639. Innocent XI, 1686, Benedict, the 14th, 1741, Pius VII, 1815. The church has never said slavery is great. Now, individual Christians have. Uh, slave owners in the South did. Uh, Presbyterian churches went along with that, yes. But in general, the majority report of the church has been, this is an abomination. And we see the culmination in 1807 when William Wilberforce strong Christian, and the Clapham sect, these friends of his like Hannah Moore, they lead Parliament to officially abolish the slave trade, 1807. So again, I'm not saying the church has been free from fault. There's an ugly entanglement with slavery, especially in America, especially in the South. But she also carries the seeds with her uh, of abolition. So I, I thought about there's a, there's a tree that was planted too near our driveway. Whoever planted this tree was not thinking about what would happen if you plant a tree next to a driveway. And so this thing grows up, and of course it breaks up uh, our driveway because it's, right, it's, right, it's too near it. Now, little did the person know who planted that tree that that would occur, but imagine you plant a gigantic, huge oak tree uh, in the middle of like a massive parking lot. I looked it up. Biggest parking lot in the world holds 20,000 spaces. It's uh, a mall in Edmonton, Alberta. So imagine you plant this huge, the biggest tree in the world right in the middle of that parking lot, and then you wait and wait and wait, and it just, this tiny seed, you plant a seed in the middle of that, and eventually it just destroys all of this, just breaks up all this concrete. That's an image of the way the gospel looks so small, looks so weak. And yet it has incredible power in that DNA to explode and destroy the establishment of slavery. In verse 18, I think you see the, the seed right there where Paul says, uh, Peter says, servants, 
be subject to your masters, which that would actually have been scandalous to the masters that, that Peter would address the servants at all would have uh, been unpleasant to the masters. They would not have enjoyed the fact that Peter was addressing them as if they were free agents. And so that would have made them nervous to hear Peter address his, uh, these masters' um, servants. Even more outrageous was the fact that Peter critiques the masters indirectly, but very strongly, undoubtedly. In verse 21, he says, Christ, he's talking to the servants, Christ suffered for you, servants, leaving you an example. Leaving them an example. So they and Jesus are now linked in the story. Peter has put the servants in the place of Jesus. And that means that the masters have been put in the place of Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate. And so it's a, it's, it's a, it's a deep critique. It's subtle, but it's deep. What he's saying is that uh, the greatest crime in human history, the crucifixion of God, is comparable to what these masters are doing. It, it crushes the legitimacy of the masters when he makes that comparison. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. In fact, as he's crushing the legitimacy of the masters, he is elevating the dignity of the servants and comparing them to Jesus. It's almost like he takes the servant society, he has almost nothing to say to the masters. He says to the servant, look, we, we know what's going on. You know, you, Jesus is with y'all. Because actually, this is the most elaborate presentation of the gospel in all of 1 Peter. These verses, verse 21 through 25, are this elaborate explanation of the full beauty of the gospel. And it's in the context of encouraging servants. So he's like saying, we know, Jesus knows you. I know that you get him. Now this is what you have to do with these masters. So that's, that brings us to the second point, which is that they are the brothers and sisters of the servant, the suffering servant. Verse 20, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When you do good and suffer for it, you endure, and this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's not enabling abuse. That is ennobling their suffering. It's putting them in the story of victorious grace. Um, It says in verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten. So as they are awaiting the gospel breaking through the institution of slavery, Peter is telling them, You know, y'all know your suffering king well. And he knows you, and you get each other, and you're part of the triumphal sufferings of Christ. You are part of that story. You're resonating with the very soul of the suffering servant. When when one of our our children, you know, goes over and helps someone who's feeling left out, or when they cheer for a teammate or help someone off the ground, uh, an opponent, or something like that, that, when they do things like that, it resonates with my soul. You know, those of you who are parents know how proud you are of a child uh, when they do something like that. Um, They imitate something that you want them, some virtue that you want them to imitate. And when these servants are standing up to abuse with grace and poise and refusing to retaliate, they are resonating with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 7 says, he was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. And that that whole section of Isaiah 53 is very mysterious. Nobody knows exactly what's going on, but it's definitely a reference to this 
mysterious figure who's going to come and he's going to redeem Israel. And he's going to redeem Israel by suffering for them. By being oppressed and afflicted and yet not opening his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. And all these verses, Peter is saying, you're like the suffering servant. You are the servants and he is your brother and y'all are together. And he gets you and you get him. And when the suffering servant came to earth, Jesus Christ, he completely redefined what greatness was. He redefined what being on the top and the bottom was. He flipped the pyramid upside down. In the world, in the empire, the pyramid is like this, and you're trying to get to the top of the pyramid, and you're trying to get as many people below you to serve you and look up to you, and Jesus just completely flips the pyramid. And he says, no, the way to go up is to go down. And the way to greatness is to go down and to keep serving more and more and more people. And when James and John said to, the, to him, like, who gets to sit at your right hand? You know, who gets to be in a position of power? Jesus says, have you not understood me? This is Mark 10, 43. He says, you know, those who are considered great among the Gentiles, they lord their power over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it is not to be that way among you. Because whoever would be great among you must be the servant. And the greatest of all must be the servant of all. Because even the Son of Man did not come to this earth to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, you know, if you're someone who's got a lot of people working for you, who's at the top of the heap, uh, who's arrived, just be careful. Because that's a dangerous place to be in the kingdom of God. That's a place where God has given you power and he's asking you to use that power to go down and to serve people. And it's very easy to think when you're going higher that you're getting stronger and stronger and stronger and closer and closer to Christ, but the way to Christ is down. It's always down. And if you're evaluating greatness by who has the power, and we do that in politics a lot, don't we? Who's got the power? We need to, re- we need to reshuffle power. And, and Jesus says that is not the right view of power. In the kingdom of God... Power is losing, is giving up, is giving away, is lifting up. And if you're afraid the church is losing power in America, that's not the spirit of Christ. That's not the way Jesus sees things. If you envy people who wield power, if you get frustrated when somebody asks you to do a menial task, you know, I'll get frustrated at times when someone asks me to do a menial task, like, can you take care of this email? Um, will you track down this thing? Will you clean these dishes? Will you walk the dog? And I'm like, do you know who I am? You know, I'm a, I'm a busy man. I'm an important person. I'm praying right now. I literally do think that. I'm, I'm, I'm pra- I'm, I can't believe you're bothering me. I'm praying right now. And Jesus says, do you still not understand me? Do you not realize that I bore your sins in my body gladly on a tree for you? And I'm never going to stop telling you that until you get it. Verse 24, I bore your sins in my body on a tree. And that is what is most ultimately true about any of us, is that he bore our sins. And our only healing is in a very deep, deep comprehension of his wounds. Because the climax of the suffering servant song in Isaiah 53 is written in verse 24, By his wounds, you have been healed. He's wounded to heal you. He's punished to justify you. He takes your sin. He gives you his righteousness. By his wounds, you're healed. So the seed of the gospel not only breaks up slavery, it also heals us. 
It turns the world upside down. It turns our imagination upside down. It helps us reimagine everything through the lens of Christ. Um, there's a man named Tom Holland, not the guy who plays Spider-Man. Um, this guy is a great historian, fantastic British historian. Um, I just absolutely, whenever I get a chance to listen to him, I, I listen to everything that he says. Uh, the books he's written, he wrote, he wrote a book called Dominion, like my favorite book last year. Um, and he is moving towards being a Christian. There's no doubt about it. He's getting very close. Um, and he wrote a bunch of books uh, on the Roman Empire, on the Babylonian Empire, uh, on Muslim empires. He's fascinated by empires. Um, he seems to know everything about history. And as he was studying other, he's an, he was an atheist. And as he was studying these empires, he realized, you know, I, I'm fascinated by these empires, but I wouldn't want to live in these empires because the way they do things is very different from us. And the more he studied um, the history of Christianity, and that's what Dominion is about. It's about Christianity compared to these other empires. And this is what he, uh, he said in an interview. Um, he's, talking, he's having a conversation with N.T. Wright, great theologian, Tom Wright. And Tom Holland said, The cross symbolized the very power of Rome to torture to death anyone who opposed her rule. It was the archetypical punishment for a rebellious slave it was a public billboard advertising their total humiliation and annihilation. But Jesus upended this symbol from degradation to triumph, from humiliation to glory. The one who suffers the death of a slave turns out to be the creator of heaven and earth. The victim triumphs over the victimizer. <laughs>